This is Teaching Otherwise, a podcast exploring teaching in psychology. Welcome to episode four, Remotely Interesting. In this episode, we share excerpts from a conversation the three of us, Brady Wiggins, Josh Clegg, and Joe Austinson, recently had about remote teaching. One of the reasons for asynchronous teaching online being considered best practice. I think it's because, I think there's maybe a number of reasons, but my understanding is that it's a primarily an access issue. Like not everybody has the same degree of access, the same technology, the same like internet connectivity or speed. And so that when things are asynchronous, then whatever people's technology level, they can interact with the material in the, in the same way, basically. There may be other reasons as well. See that? I find that interesting because I think that um, the the I sometimes feel like the conversations that we have in the classroom uh, are some of the things that that do more for enabling uh, some of maybe the underrepresented groups to begin to see what kind what those conversations are meant to look like and what critical thinking looks like and and there's a really rich and sort of valuable outcome in that sort of interaction and so i i i feel like the asynchronous is always going to lean you towards passing information along which has the tendency to be i think oppressive in ways that that escape our attention yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree. I think of the banking model as sort of what you're pushed into if you're going to be asynchronous. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who have figured out ways to do it better, you know, who have, have been able to use a more discursive, critical, dis discursive kind of dialogical approach asynchronously, I guess maybe using, you know, um, discussion boards and stuff like that. But I, I have a hard time seeing imagining or designing something that really feels as effective for real teaching as just having real conversations. Yeah, like when I think about my experiences with asynchronous communication, like just reading a book, I think I get a lot out of reading a book. And I think I can do that with kind of an internal dialogue, whether it's with the author, the material, or imaginary interlocutors. But it's always less than I think it would be if I were to actually have to have conversations with real other people responding to me. Or, um, I mean, may maybe the one exception where it could stay entirely asynchronous is if I had to do some substantial writing that would get um, substantive feedback that I'd have to do revisions on, you know, if, if, the, if the dialogue came in that form, yeah. but, but that usually doesn't scale to what online classes usually have to be. I think it varies a lot by the, the how technical the material is too. So like yeah. if, I'm, if I'm trying to teach students something a little more technical, say like stats or methods, I can I can more clearly imagine an asynchronous approach where where I'm teaching them something pretty specific and pretty kind of ritualized that 
that they can then practice a lot with lots of scaffolding, which I think is one of the advantages of asynchronous is that you can build a lot of scaffolding around it. Um, and then, you know, have moments where they get more personalized feedback and then they can go back into working the, the technical task or whatever. But, so I could see like a methods class a little bit easier, but something like my history class, it's very hard to imagine how I can translate a lot of the kinds of, um, not just discursive, but also like, um, like activity oriented kinds of learning that we do in that class. Yeah. I was just thinking about Brady's, you know, Brady, you mentioned this book and I, I feel the same way about books too. And, and I've done, I've done like a couple of MOOCs actually one on uh, general theory of relative or special relativity theory, which was really fun. And I, and I think I can learn really well from asynchronous modes of, of, um, delivery but but i don't see a lot of my students really responding to their readings in that way yeah. and it could be that they're just not invested in it but i think in a lot of cases it, it can be that they just don't have a lot of practice um or or n quite know how to do that which which i think is one of the advantages that the classroom offers sometimes is it gives us a chance to model what those conversations around a text might look like or around an idea well, what are the odds that you're going to have some interesting conversations about what you're learning from your MOOC, right? That you you already are well practiced in dialogue, conversation. You know how to take your intrinsic motivation for learning and drive that through. I mean, when, when they find those 90% of people dropping out of MOOCs, you happen to be one of the few that knows how to hang in in the first place. And I remember when you were taking that and you talk about it when we meet together. I, I, I'm trying to imagine the student that's already not a big reader to begin with, they might be somewhat socially anxious and perhaps they've got some minority status, whether that's race or gender or whatever else, that leaves them socialized to maybe not speak up as much, to not be as assertive in putting forth an opinion or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the Joe's point about the underserved students, you know, I, um, being the ones who maybe are most deserved by an asynchronous approach. I, I certainly, right, that's the, that's what they concluded at, um, where was it San Jose or what was the place where they were doing the San Jose, yes, yeah, San Jose something. State yeah, College. San Jose State. It was like a community college, wasn't it? No, I think it was a state, like oh, San Jose so. State or something. Okay. We wrote about it in a paper, so right. I don't remember. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> what, that, whatever that place was we wrote about, that place, like that was the conclusion, right? They came to is that the, the minority students, the first generation college students, underserved, economically disadvantaged students and so on, they're the ones who are dropping out and failing in these like large scale asynchronous um, modes of delivery and I think that there's truth to that I think a lot of my students who are in those kinds of categories they benefit a lot from the kinds of things we do in class that model like you were saying the process of um, engaging with sources critical thinking discussion and so on so you know you and I can learn well from an asynchronous MOOC style because someone did that for us you know and maybe someone did that for us from the time we were very small in our own homes right. And a lot of my students, no one has ever done that for them. No one has ever right. modeled critical thinking or discourse, at least in the sense of 
engaging with with highly abstract um, academic style uh, sources. So yeah, I could see an asynchronous mode leaving them even further behind. Yeah, well, I mean, the notion of of what to talk about, but who to talk about it with, and whether I even have permission to have this kind of conversation, like all of those things seem like they could really be quite distant. I came across a MOOC at one point, I think it was Brown University that did it, and it was some humanities course that I didn't end up finishing, uh, if I recall, but but um, the instructor, I don't remember if he did any lectures, but he recorded these conversations that he had with his own students and then, and then put those up. And I, and I don't remember being too thrilled about watching those. That's probably why I dropped out of the class. It, it all felt very pretentious to me, like, oh, there's this group of people having a conversation. I get to listen to them. Um, hey, Joe, we have a podcast. <laughs> well, no, I know. <laughs> That's the thing, right? Is 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 like I, on the one hand, I I get that sentiment, right? And and I think what he was trying to do, to his credit, was he was trying to model the sort of conversation that can take place around these texts. Um, it, instead of trying to just deliver lectures about. I think that was when I first encountered Madame Bovary, actually. Um, and rather than, than try to, to lecture about that, he was trying to model a conversation around that. So I, I wanted to kind of appreciate the, the conversation on the one hand. On the other hand, well, I won't say more about that, I guess. <laughs> but, but I wonder if that's a, if that's a kind of approach an asynchronous approach that makes sense. I mean, even, even to have like some of your students join you synchronously at some point during the week, um, to have a conversation about the text and, and rotating your students through that sort of, that sort of ritual, I guess. And then giving that smaller conversation over to the entire class um, as an example. I don't know if that's something that would that would work better uh, um, asynchronously. Yeah, I could see myself getting bored by that. You know, um, <laughs> Freddie's, Freddie's point is well taken. That that sounds sort of like a podcast. Although maybe there's a bit of an irony there. But uh, yeah, I could see myself. You know, if I'm not in the conversation, listening to other people have it might might sound a little pretentious or boring or depends on the conversation and how new it is to me or I don't know. It, they were brown university students so they were all pretentious <laughs> that's right yeah just like we would be if we were having that conversation probably. that's exactly right <laughs> maybe no, not maybe not brown level pretentious you know we can't aspire <laughs> Quite i definitely don't work at brown yeah. Yeah, we don't have ivy league pretensions but we do our best <laughs> we do our best no, but, but I wonder, I'm actually thinking about this now because I, I wonder what it would be like to, to pull some of my students aside. Because I, I think about that access issue is a, a very important issue at, at UTM because we have, um, it's not just levels of poverty that we're necessarily concerned about. There are plenty of people that have enough money for internet access, but just live in an area where it's not available because it's so rural. 
you know, and, and so we have, I mean, we have all sorts of access problems. And in fact, the university uh, using some of the CARES Act money has purchased these hotspots that, that students can check out for free from the library, you know, but they have to then depend on cell, cellular access, right. which even some of them don't have out in, at, at their homes. And so, um, but, but what if, what if I were to ask them, so I'll ask you this question then, I mean, um, what if I were to ask them to once or twice during the semester make their way to a McDonald's or to a city building where they can get internet in their car and just have like a 50 minute conversation with me so I can do something like these small groups. So then I can be attentive to their access, but, but ask them to experience kind of an inconvenience um, once or twice during the semester as a way of, of offering each student in the class the opportunity to participate in the conversation, but also to see that the kinds of conversations that need to happen modeled for them by me and, and other students. Yeah, I mean, it's seriously complicated by the, you know, by the circumstances of the pandemic, because I think people who do online education regularly you know, or distance learning, set, you know, independent of the pandemic, I think it's pretty standard practice to require a, you know, um, constant access to high quality internet connection. I think that, mm -hmm. that that's like a prerequisite to the course. And if you can't do that, that's just, you know, you shouldn't take the course. And, and like, I think that's a very normal, I've been looking at some syllabi and websites and stuff for online education. And that seems to be a pretty standard requirement, but you just can't do that when everyone's being forced online, by, you know, with this broad fiat, right? You can't say you who were a traditional in-person student, now you have to somehow get access to internet when you didn't have it before and you and probably can't really get access to that. So that just means you have to drop out or something, right? So I think, I think that's also part of why asynchronous becomes a best practice in this situation because there are, there are so many students who are not gonna be able to rapidly or maybe at all get the kind of access necessary for a synchronous approach. And it's kind of not fair to them to, to say, well, too bad for you, you know? So, so I guess, I guess what I would say if, if I'm being practical, what I would say is I think we have to, at least what I'm going to be trying to do in my design is to try and figure out ways to make it as asynchronous as I can because of that reality. But at the same time, um, try to at least create opportunities for um, synchronous learning that maybe not everyone will be able to participate in and offer some alternatives for those who can't or, you know, basically patching it together in a non-ideal situation. Some of my colleagues are actually, they're, they're going to go ahead and do a face-to-face -face course, but they can't have all their students in the classroom at once because of social distancing requirements. So they'll, they'll, the students will take turns coming to class and the class will just be recorded and posted online. So I was thinking, Josh, as you were talking, that 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 it, it might be that once in a while there is a synchronous component and who can participate participates and who can't gets to access a recording of it. Yeah. So, so you can do that, that same, you can't actually ask certain people to participate in that conversation. So there's still, I, I think there's kind of an equality issue there that you have to, to think about. That's what the they're trying to do at my university for the fall is to have these kind of hybrid flexible some people in the classroom some people live streaming 
possibly recording them, but they also want them to be social distanced in the classroom, like nobody sits closer than six feet to one another. The, the problem that I have with that is kind of like what we were saying, you know, that sounds great for a lecture, but if you're interactive at all, especially if you want to have small group discussions, it just, it doesn't work. The, the closest thing that I've found to do, like what it sounds like your colleagues are doing is for all of my synchronous activities, I do record it and I have a backup assignment where students can write up responses to all the questions that we discuss and that sort of thing. So, I mean, you, you can kind of tier how synchronous or asynchronous it is, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, if we're talking about what's the real best practice, that's probably the real best practice is like, is you just sort of stringing together the best version you can and that's probably going to have these tiers like levels of access and that doesn't really get at some pretty basic justice issues in terms of access but you know it's probably the best we can come up with under these conditions yeah without being able to um provide the technology and the infrastructure for people to have access i don't know on our end, how we can really fundamentally address those justice issues. Yeah, our, my school is doing some of the stuff that Joe, you were mentioning, using some of the, the federal money to try and address some access issues, like making more laptops available for students to take home. But the internet, obviously internet connection, is, I mean, you can't throw money at that problem, really. Like it's a bigger infrastructure issue. Mm -hmm. Um, that the university, I don't know, they can't solve that without students coming to their location. Right. Yeah, I don't know how we could get some rural community to suddenly have high-speed internet just because we got a federal grant. <laughs> yeah, or even in individual students' cases, I don't know how effective it would be to like pay their you know, internet bills. I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to that, I suppose, if that were, if there were if that were a way of patching some of the holes in access, and that could be at least semi-sustainable, but it seems like it probably wouldn't be a very sustainable approach. We need it, what we really need is to like invest, how do a huge federal investment in some of these like local network yeah. infrastructures. Mm -hmm. That, you know, that, that's a, a use of money, federal dollars that can make a huge difference in people's lives. Kind of like the interstate program. Yeah, exactly. We should have a digital interstate. That's a, I really think that's a, uh, obviously this would be a great time for, for New Deal type. You know, we've, we've, maybe that's part of the Green New Deal. I don't know. It probably is part of the Green New Deal. I haven't read the actual legislation, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the kind of New Deal we need right now, the kind that builds like digital, local, especially local digital infrastructure. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think, I think, what we're talking about, though, does highlight kind of the tough position that teachers are in, because a lot of the things that might matter the most, we just don't have a lot of control over them. And we don't have a lot of reason to be hopeful that systemic forces are going to improve that anytime soon. Um, and so, you know, how much do you sacrifice the quality that comes from a more live mentoring type approach? to provide access, do you throw some people under the bus to improve the 
quality of your teaching for everybody else? Yeah, these, these conversations make me um, more sure that, that whatever happens in the long term, I'm probably not going to give in to the inertia that I know is going to be there to just do, do things more online. Since we're going to have to do all this work anyway and get all this infrastructure created, and it is infinitely easier for somebody like me who has an hour and a half commute, I should want to to just just switch over and just do distance learning permanently, even after the pandemic. But I don't know. I'll have to try it first. But <laughs> I, I suspect that too much is going to be lost for that to be a good solution. Yeah. Yeah, this is probably a poor analogy, but it feels a little bit to me like the advent of ebooks. Like I, I use them. I use them quite a lot, and in many ways, it makes my life better. But I always like having a hard copy of a book in my hands better. Um, and I mean, you guys have seen the research just on the advantages for learning of studying from a hard copy of a book. Like I, I, I don't think I don't think distance learning is going anywhere and it's probably getting bigger and there'll probably be some advantages to it. But I think it's more than just a kind of um, conservatism or Luddism that has me feeling like the face-to-face -face live experience is really where it's at. It's really the best version of it. So here's something interesting about my marriage. So every year we plant this garden and it's a big garden. It's like about two, 2,500 square feet. So it's a big space. We don't always plant a lot. We don't fill the space up. We do a lot of melons and that takes up about a third of the space. So, um, but, but the humidity here just, I mean, the weeds are just out of control. And so I usually spend during the months of May and June and sometimes into July, I'll spend like an hour out there a day just weeding. And I, it's, it really, by, by the middle of July, the weeds have just kind of overtaken the garden and I just sort of give up. But by then the garden's fruitful enough that I don't have to worry so much about the weeds because I can still, there's still stuff to harvest, whatever. Um, but I can never get my wife to help me with the garden, um, which, which is fine. I mean, it's like not that big of a deal, um, because I enjoy being out there, um, and I enjoy having a garden and whatever, but she, she would weed every day too. She just never would weed in the garden. She'd weed in her flower beds. But this year she's been weeding in the garden more. And I think part of it has to do with just the isolation of being in isolation and not being able to get out. And, and another part of it has to do with the fact that I'm sleeping in a little later and she's getting up earlier. So we're up around the same time during the summer. And so I was talking to her about it uh, today. And um, one of the things that I've really, so I'm bringing this up because when we wrote that, that, I think of that, the paper, the industrialized higher education paper that we wrote quite a bit when I'm out there, because if I look at the garden as a whole, first of all, I know I'm never going to win against the weeds. They're always going to come back and they're always going to take over. Right. 
that's kind of the system. So the weeds are the system. Um, but when I go out there for an hour, I have to really focus on where I'm weeding. And I have to just get rid of the weeds in that one spot and not think about the whole system. And ultimately, I do like this year, our green beans were just like completely overtaken with weeds. And so I spent about three weeks just cleaning up. We just have three rows of green beans. And I spent three weeks, about a week on each row, cleaning them up. She and I actually, and the kids helped a little bit too. Um, and, and like suddenly, once the weeds were gone, they suddenly put on so much fruit. And so we've just got like tons of green beans all of a sudden, which is really great. And they're small plants because anyway. So it, it does good to do the weeding. And so this morning, my wife was telling me, she said, you know, I think my problem with the garden, going out and weeding in the garden is it's just so overwhelming to me. And so I was telling her, but if you think about it in terms of the whole garden, then you end up depressed like we often do at the end of conversations <laughs> but you can think about it just in terms of that small plot that we're going to weed for this hour on this day then i just think there's a lot of wisdom in what we yeah doing. well you, you just you just described my relationship with my garden which is overrun with weeds right now except for about a five foot diameter circle where i i pulled a few of them <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I, I think I think it's like you need to lose your idealism without losing your ideals, right? Um, your idealism will make it feel like why bother? Because I'm never gonna defeat the system. Um, but it still matters to try. Like with the access issues, there are some students that probably are gonna get left behind, and you should feel bad about that. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't make an effort to be as accessible as you can and you know to do the best you can in the situation that you're at i don't know i i feel like it it's hard to know it's hard to know for sure what we're really losing and what we're gaining with all of these shifts to remote teaching like i think about all the things that i can learn how to do just because YouTube is what it is. And it's amazing. Um, I, I think about the things that I got interested in as a teenager and how accelerated my interest in learning would have been if I had YouTube the way that teenagers today have. But I also still think that having a mentor in any of those things, you know, whether it's learning how to play the guitar or fix my car or something like that, like it's still no substitute for having a mentor. Um, and it's hard to know whether the proliferation of these online tools, how much it eclipses that real life face-to-face -face interaction. Yeah, I mean, because you could, you, you know, we've been arguing about how access can be a justice question, but it can go the other way too, right? Because yeah, it's true that if, if we could get a mentor, that would be a better way of learning. So the same way that having small class sizes is gonna work better than having really big class sizes because you get more personalized attention. Um, but, but there are some people who won't get any access at all except through a kind of a distance format or something like that. They're not gonna be able to 
attend college at all, and maybe they will be able to now because they could do it through an internet connection. You know, like so that there's, it's not like it's cut and dried. They're like, you know, ha having some kind of like uh, in instruction that is online is like always bad for people with with who are in low income situations or whatever. Sometimes it it may actually, and for some people or some segments, or depending on how you teach it, it might actually be a justice issue the other way. Like you're giving, you're creating more access for people who don't have it. So, I, mean, it's, I think this takes us back to what Joe was saying, that not only is it overwhelming to look at the big picture, but it's also never simple to look at the big picture. And so doing your best in a small way is still, the best that you can do. Right. It's so complicated. Yeah, you don't get to know entirely what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. You you you, you act in good faith and hope for the best, but I guess and I guess like respond, adapt to yeah. and care about what the people you're trying to serve tell you. You know, maybe you'll try one thing and your students, if you listen to them, will tell you this isn't working. Or uh, I, you know, like. That's again, that local thing, right? Listening to what they're saying. And maybe you can't solve the problem in the abstract, but maybe you could solve the problem for the you know, 30 students who you're serving that semester. Right. Thanks for joining us. We hope to catch you again soon on another episode of Teaching Otherwise.